We are talking about the second annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation today. The executive director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation says this is an opportunity for all of us to learn about the lasting harm caused by residential schools. Stephanie Scott attended a national ceremony in Ottawa where a 50-meter-long memorial cloth marked with the names uh, was presented, names of kids, on a stage along with a ceremonial offering of children's shoes. What you will witness now are the 4,100 names of children who did not return home to their parents and loved ones. Every day, our ongoing research finds more and more children who died. Scott says that for too long, survivors were pressured not to tell their stories. Dennis Saddleman was just six years old when he began attending the residential school in Kamloops. Saddleman brought many in the crowd to tears today as he read a poem called Monster. Here's a portion of it. I hate you, residential school. I hate you. You're a monster, a huge, hungry monster built with steel bones, built with cement flesh. You're a monster built to devour innocent Native children. Dennis Saddleman there. The former Kamloops Residential School site, of course, has been the focus of attention since the discovery of an estimated 215 unmarked graves there in May of 2021, followed by others, including elsewhere in BC and Saskatchewan. Now, the discovery refocused attention on the legacy of the residential school system that had long been documented, but often ignored or at least pushed into the corners of Canadian history. Part of the legacy of the Kamloops Residential School in particular had been told in a master's thesis written in the mid-80s by Celia Haig-Brown called Resistance and Renewal, Surviving the Indian Residential School, which was published as a book all the way back in 1988. So the stories were out there. Well, now Haig Brown has returned to that work and with recent events in mind, written a new book, really a follow-up called Chakalmuxwil, The Kamloops Indian Residential School Resistance and Reckoning. And Celia Haig Brown, author and a professor at Toronto's York University, rather, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for having me on. This is a fascinating uh, new book because in many ways it's simply revisiting something you did long ago. Um Tell me a bit about about what was behind your thesis and how you first came to explore the Kamloops Indian Residential School and those who had lived through it. Yes, I, I certainly can tell you about that. I um I was working as a teacher in Kamloops, and I was kind of encouraged by some of my friends to apply to be the coordinator of the Native Indian Teacher Education Program. This is a program that is still offered, actually, by the University of British Columbia for Indigenous people who want to become elementary teachers. And it was set up primarily because the school system has been not kind to many Indigenous students over the years, and it was felt that this was an important uh, way to attract people, Indigenous people, to the to teaching, but also that it was um, a really important uh, way to encourage people who had not uh, been connected to school in a good way to come back to school. Well, it so happens that the Kamloops Center, the off-campus center for the Kamloops version of this program, was hosted in the Kamloops Indian Residential School, which had then been taken over by the what was then called the Kamloops Indian Band, is now called uh, to Kamloops to Sohapen. Hmm. And, uh, and so that began a very intense immersion uh, every day in coming to understand more deeply residential schools, but also coming to understand from my students how they had been affected by the school 
and how they had decided regardless education had some significant importance for them going on and particularly for the children. But in the same building that they had been in. One of the things that that stood out for me uh, in terms of coming to understand how significant residential school had been for the the people that were coming to the program is that we had entrance interviews for the students coming in. And uh, one of the students, as she was being interviewed, said, my bed was right under that window. It turned out our classrooms were in what had been the senior girls dorm. That led me to some questions like, how is it that people who have experienced residential school, which, as we know, comes with considerable horror, um, were turning to education and schooling, per se, uh, to address what they saw as the importance of language and culture regeneration. How was it received at the time, uh, resistance and renewal, your master's thesis? Well, it was my master's thesis, and it was received very well, I have to say, by the university, uh, to the point where my supervisor said, this reads like a book, you should publish it. So I thought, oh, that sounds very exciting. And off I went to a university publisher to say, here's my thesis, what do you think? Came back two weeks later, very, very nervous, what's going to happen? And the person who had read the book said, Oh, um, no, no, we couldn't take a book like this. It's uh, it's very one-sided. And I have a friend who taught in residential school, and she said it wasn't anything like this. So... I went home licking my wounds. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then it just turned out that my sister and brother were going downtown, and, and they said, let's drop it off at Pulp Press and see what they think of it. So at that time, Steve Osborne was the, uh, was the acquisitions editor, the main person there. And he was working with Randy Fred. Now, Randy Fred is a survivor of the Port Alberni Residential School. And he, at that time, was the editor of a series related to Indigenous publication called uh, Tilikum Press. He read it and said, absolutely, we'll publish it right now. You've decided to revisit it. And I know that some of the people you've just referred to are, are back with this again. What made you decide to come back to this Um 30 years later, more than 30 years later. Truth be told, I was very hesitant to come back. I am a white woman. And obviously, there are many, many Indigenous scholars, artists, novelists, uh, writers who are who have taken up explaining to the world and re-examining what residential schools have meant to people. I kept thinking, I'm not sure that there's a place for this. And I have to say, Randy this person who is a survivor of the of the residential school and who is currently elder in residence at Vancouver Island University said, Celia, we really need to do this. If Indigenous people ask me to do something, I then feel that I should do that. So I finally listened to Randy and began to think about what it would look like to revisit this work, but also full circle to come back and see what is the situation of people coming to understand residential schools at this point in time. And what did you find? I mean, I feel like we talk about it. There's so much more awareness now than there was even five years ago. But compared to 1988, I know you went back to speak to some of the same people. What did what did you find? What did you learn? Uh, the um the the thing that was so wonderful to me was the reception by the people I had interviewed originally to the idea of returning to the work. Now, not everyone wanted to, and they had some good reasons. And I have to say, a number of the people had passed on 
but their child I checked in with their children to see if they wanted to make a contribution. And they did. And I also felt this was a perfect opportunity for me to remove the anonymous regulation that had been part of the university research to give people an opportunity to name themselves and to therefore get credit for the stories they had told me and the work that they had done with me. I also uh, gave people an opportunity, whether it was the children and grandchildren or was it whether it was the participants themselves, to write an additional piece if they wanted to add something to talk about where they are now in terms of their relationship to residential school. It was incredibly rewarding. It was incredibly demanding. I thought it was going to be simple to go back. Um, I also went through the text and did some minor editing, not not a lot of change. Um, the stories are the stories and and they remain the same. Celia Haig-Brown is with us this half hour. She is the author of Chakomakswil, the Kamloops Indian Residential School Resistance and Reckoning. It is an update of sorts, a circling back of sorts on a master's thesis that she wrote back in the 80s called Resistance and Renewal, uh, also focusing on the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Uh, this one, though, uh, called Resistance and Reckoning. So we've gone from renewal to reckoning, and I was interested about what that may mean for the rest of us. There's certainly a, a call to action in there in some ways. Definitely, there is a call to action. I think the calls to action were very, very explicitly stated by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Sadly, not enough of them have been acted on. It, it feels to me we can't have it both ways. Either we think British law, Canadian law, Constitution of Canada matters and is appropriate and real, and we have to pay attention to the various laws that guided us, or we don't, but we can't have it both ways. So just for an example, if we look at the Royal Proclamation of 1763, it indicates very clearly if Indigenous people's lands are to be taken over, there has to be uh, treaties, there have to be some kind of recognition on the part of both, both sides. Now, we know that those treaties are Mm, uh, somewhat suspect as well, but even that did not happen in lots of Can in lots of places in Canada. So the reckoning comes, I think, with yes, a, a recognition, an acknowledgement that residential schools existed, that they were dehumanizing places, that they were part of a really strong effort by Canada to obliterate Indigenous languages, cultures, to stop people from practicing their culture, from living their ways of life, for some reasons that also look highly suspect. We can have the idea of, oh, you know, with good intentions, the uh, idea of civilizing these people, these people, as they're referred to. But in, in fact, if we look more closely, it really becomes a situation of having access to land, for those people who wanted to come and settle in a new place, resources for those people who were feeding factories, um, both in in the in Canada but more prominently in Europe and other places. So it it just is essential for people who will call themselves Canadians, I think, to know some of our history and then to figure out where do we go from here. It's not as if we can send everyone back. I know there may be some people who wish they could. It's not, I think it's not going to happen. So how do we find ways to continue to live in peace and harmony in this country in a way that also includes decency, respect for Indigenous people whose lands Canada is laid over top of? 
And in the term Chakalmuxville is also the idea of, of re, if the residential school system dehumanized, then this is an attempt to rehumanize. And I'm wondering how you see that. Yes, and I think it, I, I think that the title's so important. It's much more than an attempt. The title really translates to something that says we become human again. And I think that what's important is to recognize that in things like the papal bulls that guided colonization from the word go, indigenous people who refused to convert to Catholicism or one of the Christian religions were seen to be inhuman. And I think that now we're at a place where we are not that barbaric as to think that certain human beings must behave in certain ways to be human. And indigenous people themselves are very cognizant of the fact that the time is right, that not only, as they have always known, that they've always been human, but people are beginning to recognize and understand and treat them with the respect that should be dealt to human beings. You said uh, you you discussed this in a in an op-ed you wrote for the Globe and Mail about those who say we should move on, and you know it, it is. I, I've been to many parts of the world that have suffered through incredible tragedies and incredible harms placed on other people by people in power. Um, it is easy to move on sometimes, or it's easy to want to move on. It's almost human nature to want to move on. But you argue that we really cannot move on until we accept what came before us. I do. There's a there's a really interesting move in uh, in indigenous scholarship, but also in indig with indigenous artists around what's referred to as indigenous futurism, and I I didn't like the word when I first heard it, but I came to understand that when people talk about futurism, they talk about the fact we live here in this moment now, but we can imagine a different future. But the way to imagine a future that can be different and respectful and decent is to never lose sight of the past. So all of those things work in concert together to ensure that we can learn and grow and shift and change and find ways to be decent to each other. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky idea, but it's... I just think it's essential, and I, I also, as I as I said in the uh, in the op ed, I also think that we need to be we non Indigenous Canadians need to be very aware of the fact that Indigenous people have now taken full advantage of Western education as we call it, and are educated as lawyers and doctors and professors, and they also have immersed themselves in their traditional cultures. The people that come with those two knowledges in playing, interplaying with one another, have strengths beyond any knowledge that one single view of, of uh, knowledge could bring. And in that way, they can use courts to show where we've gone wrong. They can produce histories. They can produce artwork that draws us into those histories and then pushes us now think about how do we move beyond that? How do we move back to some of the very strong uh, aspects of Indigenous knowledge? How do we, non-Indigenous people, ever come to know how to behave properly on this land? Celia Haig-Brown, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ben.